Hi, welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. Glad you're joining us. We appreciate you listening as we continue to work our way through the Enneagram. At this point in our study, we have tried to give a good overview of the types. In fact, if you haven't listened to the session on the types, you may want to just pause this podcast and go do that. That will be very helpful. From this point on, it really will help to have a pretty good sense of at least one or two numbers you think might be feeling like a fit for you. So today we talk, Michael, about the Enneagram in the bigger sense, how some of the numbers are related, some of the connections. As you look at the diagram that we have prepared for you, you can find that on the website. You can find that just about anywhere. You will notice that within the circle and the nine points, there are connecting lines. That's actually what the word Enneagram means, the nine-pointed star that you see inside the circle. But that means something. That has to do with the way that there are some connections within the types. And as we move into this idea, the first thing we encounter is the idea of a wing. Uh, Michael, what, what do you make of wing? What's a good way to understand that for people? I think one way that was described that was really helpful for me came with an art metaphor. They were talking about these nine personality types as the primary colors of the Enneagram. And the way that you might see that at first is that that's restrictive, that you're not going to nail any one person down to one of nine things. And wings is the first introduction of how those primary colors mix. In other words, it's not just each and every one of us embodying one thing 100% completely, but rather recognizing that if you are centered in one of these numbers, you're going to start mixing with the numbers closest to you. So just to make that very clear, if you're a number two, you're going to have some relationships, some mixing throughout the course of your life with one and three. And you may actually be drawn more to one than the other. You may have more three than you have one or vice versa. And that's just related to you living in life and sort of making your way into different strengths and weaknesses that you bump into as you go. So the basic idea then is that there are not hard boundaries between the types, but they are more like neighborhoods that spill into one another. And as you move from one to another or as you find yourself in one, it is very likely, in fact, almost certainly that you will also find that you have a significant number of characteristics from one of the numbers on either side of yours. If you're a seven, you're going to strongly identify with some of the tendencies of either eight or nine etc. And in the Enneagram, these are called wings. And so you will hear people talk about being a five with a four wing, a three with a two wing. And what that means is that you have identified your primary type, the place where you live, the thing that really hits you the most. However, you also get some of what is described in one of the neighboring numbers, one of the neighboring types. Clint, I was just having a conversation with someone last night, and we were talking about this idea of wings, and they were trying to make sense of how you could have two of the deep core needs at the same time. And I think a way to understand this is, it's not that you have two core sinfulness, that there's going to be one of these numbers that speaks to you, whose narrative just makes sense. There's then tendencies or propensities of these surrounding numbers then that can blend naturally into that. So 
for instance, you might be a five. You might be someone for whom observation, standing back, being at the edge of the room, sort of hoarding and compiling knowledge because you live in an anxious world. Maybe that is your home base. You understand that. But you are maybe a little bit drawn to the idea of structure and institution and idea. So you borrow some of the sixes assumptions and you work that into you. You're motivated by the idea of knowledge, by the idea of observation, by the idea of contemplation and intellect. But you think that, you know, working your way up the corporate ladder or uh, finding a good place within a particular political party, that that's going to be the solution. So now you're starting to blend neighborhoods using your analogy, Clint. You're you're sort of working your way over, drawing some of the tendencies and ideas of your neighbor. But the thing that's driving you remains that core thing native to your number. Right. And you may find that those nuances really give you a different flavor and probably explain some places where you may not feel that you fit completely within your type. If you're a one and you're very concerned with order and perfection, you may also borrow from the nine that struggles to be motivated. And you may find yourself sort of constantly struggling with, on one hand, your core desire to get things done and do them well, and this secondary influence of feeling a little overwhelmed and wanting to withdraw. And all of us have some of those places where the type that we occupy and the types next to us interact with one another. And it creates some really creative, individual, and unique kind of recipes for how we are put together spiritually, psychologically. There's a sense in which the Enneagram is spatial. In other personality typing systems, there's really not this kind of blending, this kind of inter-talking that happens that you have within the Enneagram. So when you have a number like a nine, it has on either side of it an eight and a one. And that positioning, that spatial positioning on the circle has meaning. This idea of wings says where you're at means that you're closer to some things than others. And we're going to nuance that further when we get halfway through our conversation here today. But just for right now, safe to say that if you're a nine, you're much more likely to identify with the eight or the one than a five or a four. The idea is that those propensities, those ways of being in the world are going to be less likely for you to make sense than some of these numbers who are closer to your number. Yeah, I think it's the Enneagram's way of compensating for the fact that none of us are purely anything, that there is room within each type for growth, for movement. And if you are at a point in this study where you are starting to feel pretty comfortable with the number, say you've identified yourself as a seven, for instance, and that feels really comfortable. You read the descriptions, you've heard the conversations, and you think more and more, boy, that really seems to be where I come from. It might be interesting to take a look at the five and the six. And you will almost inevitably find that in one of those types, you will find some things that also seem familiar. Not as striking, they don't ring the chord the same way that your primary number does, 
but you will find yourself saying, yeah, I, I do some of that. I get some of that. And that's a good indication that you may have found your wing. And the wing, by the way, as Michael mentioned, is always going to be adjacent to your number. It's always going to be plus one or minus one from where you start. One Enneagram teacher talks about the wings as being a potential tool of identifying what number you are. And the way that they described that was that sometimes you'll have a person who will identify with three numbers and they'll all be next to each other. They'll identify with, say, three, four and five. Well, this particular author said that's often a good sign that you live right smack dab in the middle. That you're, in that case, probably a four with three and five wings. And the idea is because you've, over time, worked your way out. One thing I would say here, Clint, is I'll just admit to those of you listening with us in this conversation that when I first made my way into the Enneagram, this idea of wings seemed to me to be a little squishy. I didn't know exactly what to do with it because it felt a little bit like saying, here's all of these numbers. Oh, and by the way, there's this complicated compilation thing happening, and it felt less helpful than it did feel helpful. As I've now lived with it for a little while and started to give some more thought and time to exactly how these typologies work in relationship, I can say from this vantage that this begins to make more sense. It's less about just complexifying it, and it's more as you start to get a grasp of what the whole Enneagram is trying to do this just is a natural part of that extension. So if you come into this and this sounds confusing, it sounds like you're making something that was simple, more complex, I guess my recommendation would be to stick with it, try to learn the stuff that connects most deeply with you, and some of this will make more sense as you go. I think there's also maybe a safety net in this, Michael, in that it does complicate it and it can seem almost needless at first, but it provides a way of trying to avoid the mistake of thinking that once we have these nine labels, we can slap them on anybody. It's, I think, helpful that the Enneagram says, here's where we start with these nine big picture items. But don't go from there thinking that you can neatly categorize everyone because there's more to it than that story. Yes, a person may be a four, but that doesn't mean we understand who they are. They may borrow from the three. They may borrow from the five. They may be this combination of things that make people more complex, more interesting, more frustrating in some sense. But I think the Enneagram helps us because once we have our number and we start getting the basics, our temptation is to want to start labeling things. And I think this helps us put the brakes on that a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And I think that these wings also provide an opportunity for us to recognize how resilient we are as humans. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter if you've ever heard of the Enneagram before or not. Once you use this tool to look back on your life, you will be able to see that throughout your entire life, without this tool, you've been working towards, in both positive and negative ways, making up for your shortcomings. We just intuitively try to make our lives work better than they do. We try to accommodate for weaknesses, and the wings are a way in which whether you know about the Enneagram or not, you've probably been working on it. You've probably found ways of trying to accommodate. And that can be a positive, a really great, healthy sign. You also have to say, 
it can be negative. You can share from your neighbor's weaknesses as much as you can their strengths. So some of us have made some ruts in places where we would rather not. I think your example, Clint, of the one borrowing some of the slothfulness of the nine is a good example of that, that maybe the one's accommodation to feeling like nothing in their life is ever the way that it should be is to just sort of give up and lethargically say, ah, this isn't worth it anyways. Well, that's not a positive appropriation of the nine. That's a negative. And so your awareness of the wings can help you even start teasing out, okay, this is a strength that I want to live into. This is a weakness to be avoided. I agree 100%, Michael. I think the wing thing, if it doesn't make sense to you at this point, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I think it helps to be aware that it's a thing, that it's something that Enneagram people talk about. I think if you have questions, there's lots of ways to follow up in that. If you don't feel like you have found your number, so to speak, I would not worry about the wings at this point. If you're looking at your number and you're finding yourself saying, I am that, but boy, I do that too. And you're looking at a category next to your number. That's a good indication that maybe at some level you are experiencing this idea of having a wing. None of us are purely one thing. And keep in mind that one of the things that we hope happens as we mature is that we grow. And as we grow, we move into some of the good parts of other numbers. So you still may find that there are several things that apply to you around the circle. That's okay. In fact, that could be good news for you, but you will likely find that you start from a particular place. So let's say you've stuck with us this far. You said, wow, it's getting a little bit more complicated. Remember, this thing was created by mystics. We've not even scratched the surface yet. So let's make it even more complicated. Enneagram teachers will talk about what they'll call the triads. Note that there's nine numbers in the Enneagram typology that being divided into three sets of three numbers. And so once again, this is a spatial typology. These numbers are connected spatially and numerically. So you have three triads. The first triad that we have is the eight, nine, and the one. That triad has multiple ways of being talked about. So some of these descriptors are the type and place of the body where they are rooted. Another way to look at them is their major faculty of living in the world. So the eight, the nine, and the one are called the gut triad, but they are also called the anger triad. The two, the three, and the four are called the heart triad. They're also called the feeling triad. And the five, the six, and the seven is called the head triad or the thinking triad. And each and every one of these sets of numbers has a particular vantage from which they are connected by the processing place in the body and the tools that they use to do it. So maybe the best way to do this is go number by number. But before we do that, Clint, um, any things that you think we should know about the triads? As I understand the triads, Michael, or at least what's helpful to me is to think that there are these connected numbers, these sets of three that kind of operate from the same place. They're feeling people, they're thinking people, they're instinctive or intuitive people, and that that's not true of the other sets. So that a seven and a one are starting from a different place, one being a thinking place and one being a gut place. 
And a four is going to start from a completely different place, a heart place, an emotional place. And we all have all of those systems, but I think the one that we trust the most, the one that we use most instinctively, the one that we by default go to gives us a sense of, again, where our number might be and and what group we might belong to. Maybe the only way to really understand triads is to go through the numbers and to talk about how they relate to each other. So let's just jump right into that. Let's start with an eight. Uh, The eight, of course, is the challenger, the one who is going to be first to press the boundaries, to not back down, to question another person, to to jump right in. There may be the most obvious version, would you say, Clint, of that idea of the gut people. If you give that their default emotion is anger, you can see how the challenger is the one who's going to respond to a situation quickly, instinctively, rise up out of a constant feeling of discontent and anger, and so therefore their actions happen. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think the eight, the idea would be for an eight that they trust their instinctive ability to discern right from wrong. They don't need to think their way to it. They don't feel their way to it. They just function with the possibly misinformed belief that in any given scenario, they know what's right. That They just know that. And you'll hear eights or ones, maybe possibly nines as well, talk about I just follow my gut. I vote with my gut. I get in a situation where I have to make a decision and I'm going to go with what my gut tells me. I'm going to I'm going to follow my instincts. Other people are going to say I dig in and I do a ton of research. That's not where an eight lives, not where a one or a nine lives. They all hold to this idea that those answers are found internally, not externally. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the odd one in that triad is the nine. Agreed. Because you would not initially think that the peacemaker, the mediator, that these are the individuals who operate from a vantage of anger. But bear with us here for a second. You have people whose entire life experience is living in between, whose natural giftedness helps them to see other people's points of view, that they can literally have conversations with people diametrically opposed and hear both of them well. The problems that nine experience in the world is that since they're so good at that mediating, everyone comes to them to be heard But almost no one takes the time to hear the nine, to affirm the nine's existence, to say that I see you, I know you're in the room, you matter. And the nines live with this constant sense that they're not important. They're not special. Nobody even knows when they walk in the room. Nobody cares when they leave the room. Can you see the nine is harboring some anger? They've built up a large store throughout their life in which they've come to believe Nobody cares, and I'm angry about it. So I think the nine lives perfectly positioned in the middle of that spectrum, Michael. If you take frustration with the world or anger, the eight wants to attack it. The eight wants to overcome it and stand up to it. The one wants to manage it, to organize it, to channel it. And the nine wants to withdraw from it. The nine just wants to step back and not deal with it. But they all start with the same fuel. They take it in very different directions, but it's the same reality the three of those numbers are dealing with in very unique ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great summary. So you've already said for the one that the one's desire is to channel it. Say more about that. 
I think the the one takes their anger, their fear of not getting things right, and they want to bring order. They want to bring balance. So their anger tends to be internalized. They tend to use it as fuel, but they're not going to be in conflict. They're not going to attack people. They're going to work their tail off to make things better. And again, that's often fueled by a sense of frustration because their innate suspicion is things aren't the way they should be. And that creates in them this frustration that drives them. But they're going to handle it very different than an eight or a nine. The eight's going to blow up about it. The nine's going to try to get away from it. The one's going to go to work trying to fix it. Then let's turn our attention here to the next set of numbers, the two, the three, the four. These are the heart people, the people who are in some way driven by their core perception of emotion. So we start with the two who is maybe like the eight, the most uh, simple or most understandable version of this. The two is constantly mirroring the emotions of those around them. Remember, they're the helper. They're the person whose entire life is literally lived from the narrative. I'm as good as I am helpful to other people. And so for them, when there is emotion in the room, that emotion is not one that they empathize with. That is emotion they are tempted to have as their own they feel what others feel. So in that way, you might think of the feeling types that they're big in their feelings or that they have a particular feeling. That's not totally true. The two in this instance is going to be feeling what others feel, whether that's grief or joy or sadness or anger. The two is going to reflect that and they're not going to be able to separate between what they're feeling and who they are. And so you see in this moment, it's a very confusing place to be because the two is having a hard time discerning between who am I and who are the emotions of these people that I'm with. Yeah. And again, I, th- I think there's a sense, Michael, in which it becomes an internalizing or externalizing. And the two is probably the epitome of externalizing feelings. They're the caregiver. They're going to reach out to others. They're going to constantly be informed by the needs of others, the situation of others, the feelings of others, and they want to connect outwardly with that. I think they're the, in some ways, the most obvious of the heart triad. They are feeling people. They're empathetic. They're sympathetic. They're compassionate. They're all of those things that you would expect a person driven by emotions. The trouble is, they sometimes substitute other people's emotions for their own, but it's all happening in their heart. Absolutely. Then you keep going down around the circle and we get to the three. What is interesting about the three is like the nine, they have a really odd relationship to the idea of feeling, to the idea of heart. Because amongst all of the numbers, all nine numbers, the three has the least awareness of their own emotions. Which is ironic because what you're saying is you have one number of the feeling triad who doesn't know their feelings. But I think the flip side is nobody is working harder to suppress their emotions than the three is. And I think that's how they end up in this triad. They're not aware of them because they are working so hard not to deal with them. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So when a three walks into the room... They're unlike the two in that they aren't feeling what other people are feeling. The three is perceiving what other people are feeling, and they're driven by their inner need to show, to perform, 
to put a face on it. So if they see others are happy and joyful, a three will instantaneously reflect the same. If they see that others are grieving and need help, the three will respond to that. But it's not empathetic in the sense that they are feeling it with them. It's that they are perceiving it and then rising up to show in light of it. And that is a form of emotional quick changes. And it's not rooted in any sort of internal foundation, but rather in the constant need to externalize it, which is, to your point, Clint, a tool, a mechanism, a way that the three has learned to avoid engaging those feelings. Yeah, is this fair, Michael? Sometimes the three is called the performer. And if you think of an actor, that's really the image here, that a three is constantly aware of emotions so they know which ones to portray. They don't belong to them. They're acting them out in order to affiliate with other people or impress other people. But it's very much they're looking for the script. They're looking for what role am I playing in this situation? So they they are very concerned with emotions. They just don't happen to be their own. Exactly. And it could be and is oftentimes manipulative and deceitful, but it's also in another sense, not those things. It, threes are obsessed with efficiency, with getting stuff done and being successful. And emotion gets in the way of that stuff. It's hard to be efficient. It's hard to get stuff done. It's hard to be the absolute best at everything that you do if you're always getting bogged down with by those nasty feelings. So the threes just compartmentalize, they move on, and they say, I'll get to it later, and they never get around to it. So then we move on to the four, and the four lives on the opposite side of the feeling triad. And in this place, we see individuals whose feelings and focus on those feelings has less to do with externalizing and more to do with the inward internalizing and reflection on their own feelings. Particularly their negative feelings. Fours tend to be obsessed with some of those deeper negative experiences, and they're very much heart people. But but their emotions tend to be colored on the darker side of the spectrum. Yeah, the force experience of the world is that there's a lost beauty. There's something wrong with them, that there's something broken inside. And so their externalizing is reaching out to create a reflection of the beauty that they believe must be in the world. That's why so many fours are artists and creative people is because for them, symbols and metaphor are rich, pregnant opportunities for them to reconnect with what is a lost beauty. But when you encounter the world in that way, when your world is full, of lost opportunity, you're going to be mired and stuck in some sadness. There's going to be a constant recurring kind of melancholy. And so when fours are in the midst of their life, even in some of life's most joyous, fun-filled moments, the four is going to mistrust feelings of elation. They're going to think this isn't completely true unless there's a little bit of a bite to it. And so that's why fours as a number tend to always subvert what seems to be good, looking for the bad in it because of this fundamental assumption that they have that anything that is purely good is hiding something that's not. Could we say, Michael, that the four gets comfortable enough with sadness that it kind of becomes their home base and they never are comfortable straying too far from it. They like to keep an eye on that sadness and be close enough to it to get back to it. They're afraid, really, of those moments of joy because what if they run out or what if it's not as good as they thought it would be? Or They just seems to me like not to get too far away from the place that they spend the most time, which is that kind of melancholy. 
Absolutely. And they've gotten there through some real self-reflection and self-questioning. This is why fours don't have much time of day for people who aren't self-reflective. The people who haven't found some sadness in their life, the fours really have no time for. Yeah, four, I would say fours maybe among all the types hate shallow. They just it they have a visceral reaction to it. So that takes us to the third and final triad of the Enneagram. Here we have the head, we have the thinking triad. We have in these numbers the five, the six, and the seven. So we start with the number five. And the five is, once again, uh, much like we had with the eight, much like we had with the two, maybe sort of the first, what you might assume to be the person who lives in the thinking triad. And these fives are those who live from the idea of observation and reflection. Like you said on Sunday, Clint, we don't necessarily want to think of the five as all of the most intelligent people in the world, though there's lots of PhD fives. The five is in the thinking triad because of their fundamental assumption that the way to make it in a very dangerous, broken world is to observe the stuff around you, to think about it and to know it so that when time comes for you to protect yourself or to make the right choice, that you have all of the data that you need to do it. So they're the people who live on the outside of the room. They're sort of walking and surveying the space. They're, they're looking and thinking, okay, so what are you doing? What are you talking about? What do I need to care about? They're the people who, when you call, and you say, hey, have you read this article? They say, yeah, but have you read the four other articles that say this stuff? Have you thought about that? Yeah, and maybe this would have been helpful in the beginning of the conversation, Michael, but it occurs to me that one way to think about triads may be where we escape to, and the five most of all escapes to their mind. They don't escape to their heart. They don't escape to their gut. This is what I think distinguishes a five from a one. When a one escapes, they go to their fundamental assumptions about right and wrong. Fives are going to hide in their studies, their thoughts, their mental life, and withdraw from the world. So their escape path is most clearly to the mind. And I think they're the epitome of the mind triad. One author said that they often give talks in conferences or retreats where they'll help people find their number and learn about what that means. And they joked and said that of all of the numbers, the five is the one to take all of the handouts, to put them in their binder, to get all of the information, buy the books, buy the special DVDs, and then take them home. And then two weeks later, come to the realization that they were a five that it just takes time to assemble the information, to process it, to think through it in four different ways, and then realize, oh, I guess I am a five. Yeah, if you deal with a five and you're asking them to trust your instinct or trust your heart, hey, I feel this, or I just, my gut tells me this, they won't understand what you're saying. You're going to have to use thinking language, data, observation. They can't get there any other way. That brings us to the six. Michael, the six is an interesting one in thinking triad in that they are the loyalist. They're the person who spends a lot of time creating for themselves systems, both of people and of structures that help them navigate life. And unlike the five who is obsessed with information, the six's thinking really manifests itself in thinking about those structures. Who's in my camp? Who can I trust? What is the right way to navigate life? What political party should I belong to? What school should I affiliate with? What group of people will I throw my lot in with? But a lot of that evaluation for 
them happens in the mind. And so they approach that task. It's a very different task from the five, but they approach it mentally. Is that fair? It is fair. One way to distinguish between the five and the six is the fact that the five wants to go to the ivory tower. They want to go to the place with all of the books where they can hoard the information to themselves because that's a signal of strength and ability. The six is not driven to isolation, but driven to those select few who they can trust. A six's assumption is the only way to get through life safely is to bring a safe and trustworthy posse with you. And so they're both observing, but for radically different reasons. Six is observing to identify, are you trustworthy? Is there reason for me to throw my lot in with you? Or should I be throwing my lot somewhere else? There is probably no other number so driven by anxiety as the six is. They are living in an unsafe world in which safety is paramount. And the way that they push down anxiety and the way that they try to get themselves closer to safety is through thinking, is through carefully processing and identifying who the people are who they're going to bring with them on their journey. You made the point last night, Michael, that's important that sixes do define themselves with structure, but it could be in agreement with the structure or disagreement with the structure. They can define themselves by being for something or against it, but either way to get there, they have to think their way to it. They have to think about the structure. They have to see its strengths. They have to see its weakness. They have to evaluate their response and their position, and all of that's happening in the mind of a six. It's an interesting place that they end up, but I think when you, to use the language, think it through, it begins to feel fairly obvious. Yeah, and maybe we can all relate to some experience where someone's come up to you and they are a complete advocate for whatever the thing is. Maybe it's a news item or a political talking point, whatever. And they come to you not like the five with a whole list of articles and books and a knowledge that relates to it that they're trying to process through in an analytical fashion. The six comes to you and they say, hey, you have to believe this because this person said this and because this person said this and this person said that and they're an idiot. So you need to be on the same team because we need to be together. Once you're having a conversation with someone who's a six, you're going to sense that it's both simultaneously relational, but it's also deeply centered in how they processed it in their mind. Sixes are deeply afraid of gray because they're afraid that inside themselves it's gray. And so sixes can be very black and white. And when they pick a side, they're in 100% for better or worse. Then we get to the last number in the thinking tribe, and this is another one of those numbers where you may not initially see how it works. You've got seven. They're the ones who are out there, the the experientially driven people, the people who are always out to do something new, to innovate, to always be striving at the edge of their life experience, and they're always trying to have more fun and add more experiences in their life. And you think someone who's driven to all of these experiences, that's not really a thinking trait. But when you open up the hood, you look a little bit closer, you find that the sevens have to work systemically and consistently to create a life in which they can always be having these novel experiences. In other words, while a seven is whitewater rafting, in the middle of the experience with all of the water and spray and heart pounding, all of that experience for them may be dull and gray. And so they're thinking, 
well, what's the next thing we're gonna do? They're creating in their mind the next experience that they're going to have so that they can avoid thinking deeper about an experience which they're afraid is negative. Yeah, the, the placement of seven as a thinker is, I think, the least intuitive of all of the triad stuff, Michael. But if you think about thinking, not like the five as information, but as the task of planning, of anticipating, the seven more than anyone else, because they're afraid of solitude, they're afraid to stop, they're afraid of their momentum being slowed down, they have to constantly be thinking about their next thing. What am I doing after this? To plan event and action after event and action that keeps them moving because of this fear that if I slow down, I'm going to have to face stuff I don't want to face. This is a tricky one, but I think when you think of it that way, that thinking is planning. It's not knowledge. They're not after knowledge. They're not trying to understand stuff, but they have to expend tremendous mental energy to stay sort of manically busy manically involved. And that takes some organization that happens in their minds. Which I think is also something worth noting. If you know some of those people who are the life of the party, they flit from one social group to another, how they bring this constant energy, you might bring the assumption that there's not much thinking there. And the truth is that maybe there isn't deep thought there, but that's been carefully constructed. It's not that they're not capable of thinking, it's that they've lived a life in fear of what they would find if they thought too deeply. In our continued Lenten journey, as we study the Enneagram, we continue to go deeper into the many layers that the Enneagram gives us. And this coming Sunday, we're going to engage with the reality of our brokenness with how the Enneagram frames these ruts that we've made in our lives. So I highly encourage you to come and join us for that meal, to tune in on Monday following, because we're going to actually see how our deepest brokenness connects to both our strengths and weaknesses and the interrelatedness of these nine types with each other. These things are all in conversation and it is both an avenue for personal self-exploration but an opportunity to practice compassion for others who are living in the same place. And just an honest warning, we are at that point in the journey where the Enneagram has helped us perhaps find a number and now wants to talk to us about how we got there. And that, for most of us, probably won't be an entirely comfortable conversation. There may be some moments in that that have some depth and perhaps even some discomfort, which isn't a bad thing, but it's coming, just so people are aware. It's not the best advertisement ever given, Reverend Lovell. <laughs> but we hope you come on Sunday. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. We look forward to continuing the conversation in our next Pastor Talk podcast. See you soon.